Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We're in that gap between Easter and Mother's Day, which in churches is often a time of transition. We look around the building today and say, where is everybody? Because people are in a time of transition. It's, it's, it's no longer winter. It's not summer. Yes, it's spring, but it's that kind of up in the air. People are on vacations. Sermons usually, when you preach them, they usually go up to Easter, and then you kind of try to figure out what you're going to do before Mother's Day and Subject-wise, even, it's kind of miscellaneous. It, it can feel. Um, it, and, and every year is like that, and it's kind of this routine that we're moving from the school year in, into the summer months and things change around. Um, but that's just it, that word routine. For so many of us, church can become a routine. Familiar, easy, but those aren't healthy words. We're not called to have an easy faith. We're called to have a daring, life-changing, active, vibrant, world-changing faith. And so we're in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. When Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Faith, faith is not cheap. It can't, it can't be cheap. See, so there is a problem, I'm convinced, in the United States, we have too many churches. Now, let me explain by that. We have too many people that take Christ for granted, that call themselves Christians, that go to church on a Sunday morning and don't look Christ-like. They certainly don't look Christ-like Monday through Saturday. Too many people who want to go to heaven, but who don't want to be holy, who don't want to follow Christ or be Christ-like. People who are not transformed by the life-changing spirit, but, but who have smug attitudes and think that they're better than everybody else because they call themselves a Christian and dress up on a Sunday morning and, and, and go somewhere to be seen. People who assume that this is what faith is, living to please themselves rather than God. Go to church on Sunday, sin on Monday through Saturday, and assume that that routine is okay, that that's that's fine, that God doesn't care, that God is just kind of a formula and not a relationship. God God becomes kind of like, kind of like for some of us, some of you, I'm not saying it was your parents who maybe don't know what you were really up to when you were out with with your friends, maybe in high school or, or college. It doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter what we do. They can't see us. 
They assume that God is like that parent in Walmart, the one that tells their kids to knock it off and the kids know that nothing's going to happen. There's no consequences. Why knock it off when it's just an empty, idle threat? doesn't matter how we live or what we do. And, and, and sometimes, in, somewhere in there, I wonder if, if we forget who God really is. He is the God who hated sin, hates sin so much that he flooded the world and, and destroyed everything because he hates sin that much. He hates sin so much that he sent his only son to die, to get rid of it. Why don't we hate it that much? We have a problem in the church in the United States in the 21st century. Um, we tend to take God for granted. You know, the word, so, as, as everybody at this point knows, so I majored specifically in languages. I majored in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Coptic, one of the first translations of the New Testament. Um, the there were different dialects for Greek. You've heard me say this before. The Ionic and Doric and Corinthian, and all the. If you took art class, all the different Greek columns were also all the different Greek dialects. And Alexander the Great came along, and his troops couldn't understand each other. They spoke different versions of Greek, and so organically on their own, the troops simplified Greek. They came came up with kind of a dumbed down, common version of Greek. And we call it koine because koine is the Greek word for common. And that's what the New Testament was written in. Uh, and, 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 and just the perfect timing because before Alexander the Great, if you had written the New Testament in Greek, you would have had to pick which Greek, and only certain parts of Greece would understand it. But by the time that Jesus came, there weren't different kinds of Greek. There was just common Greek, koine. In fact, the first Latin translation of the Bible we called the Vulgate. And if you think that that sounds like the word vulgar, you're right, but the word vulgar used to mean common. Um, and, and the Vulgate Latin was just the common Latin. So we had Koine Greek, common Greek, Vulgate Latin, common Latin. But somewhere along the way, we have changed the definitions of words. And so these days when we talk about common Common these days has become synonymous with cheap, but it wasn't always. The whole, the whole point of a common New Testament was that it was for everybody. We do have Jesus in common with all other Christians. Common is a good thing in Christianity, but it's not supposed to be cheap. Grace isn't cheap. We take our faith for granted. We take our Bibles for granted. We take Christ for granted. Year after year, we celebrate Easter. We celebrate Mother's Day. We, we, we celebrate the holidays of the church. We, uh, John and I were talking the other day that you know, Mother's Day is coming up, and, and, and uh, John mentioned the third big Christian holiday of the year, and I, I challenged him. It's probably the second. <laughs> so, Easter and Mother's Day always fall on Sundays. Christmas hit or miss what day of the week it falls on, and people go on vacation. I think that Easter, Mother's, my previous church, Mother's Day was the highest attendance every year at church. And so here we are between these two big Sunday holidays. And why is Mother's Day the biggest, the biggest church? It's because people show off to their mom, right? We'll go to church once or twice a year just to make mom happy. That's, that's pretty heartbreaking if you think about it. 
And so then you got the problem that for the people that only show up maybe on Easter and Christmas, or Easter and Mother's Day, or maybe all three, they, are they hearing the same sermons year after year? I mean, if you only come to church on Easter, you're only going to hear the same Easter. It's why I kind of broke it up a couple weeks ago. You're only going to hear the same message every, every year, and I'm not sure that we're learning a lot out of that. We take God for granted when the going is easy. And then we desert him when the going gets tough, which was what Jesus' prediction was about the disciples. What many call faith is really just fair-weather affection. You know, that, that was the threat that Peter needed to learn when Peter said, I'm the one who will not desert you. Well, we're going to keep reading and we'll see that. We have to ask ourselves, do we love God? I, I think there's a lot of people that go to church. They, I don't know they necessarily love God. They just don't want to go to hell. They have enough rudimentary faith that they believe that there is a heaven and they believe that there is a hell and they don't want to go to hell. Maybe they're even just hedging their bets and that there might be a heaven and there might be a hell. And they want cheap grace. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be Christ-like. They don't want to be transformed. They don't want to be holy. They just don't want to go to hell. Bare minimum is what we're after. But that's not holiness. And that's not a relationship with God, and it's not what, what we're called to when we're called to be Christians. Faith isn't cheap. Uh, so we keep reading, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Faith takes effort. It does. Too often we, we treat our relationship with Christ as that bare minimum auto coverage. What's the least amount I have to pay? And what's the least... If I said when Pamela and I got married, if I said what's the least amount of presents I have to get you for your birthday, for anniversary, Christmas, what's, what's the least amount of dates I have to take you on, I would hope that she would run screaming and not and say we're not getting married because because how can you have a successful marriage when the attitude is what's the least i have to do to keep you and yet people treat their faith that way what's the least amount i have to do with god what's the least amount i have to put in the offering plate what's the least amount i have to go to church what's the least amount of, of change i have to have in my life 
no such attitude would create a successful marriage, why would we think it would create, knowing that the, that the church is the bride of Christ, why would we think that that would create a healthy relationship with God? Jesus asks his disciples, can you not stay awake for even a little bit? Just throw a little bit of effort into your relationship with me? His question still haunts his disciples today. Will we put effort into our faith? We wonder how Israel could... And, 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 I, and I wonder this. We've been looking this, my, uh, the kids I teach on Wednesday night, how these, these children of Israel could, could watch the Red Sea part, could walk between the waters and see, all, and, and see this pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, be given manna from heaven and then still worship a golden calf. And, I, and I've puzzled over that, and I don't know that there's an easy answer of how they could experience all of these miracles and still so quickly turn away from God at a moment's notice. And yet, I wonder, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the chance to read the Word of God. I wonder if they would look forward in time and see what we have blessings, the easy life, we're not marching through a desert, and look at the fact that we can pick up this book whenever we want to and read it, and we don't. So many, you know, 7,000 plus languages on earth, most of them don't have the Bible, the complete Bible. We do, in, in your choice of hundreds of translations in the English, and we take it for granted. And we don't read it, and we don't study it, and we don't devote our lives to it when so many people in the world don't have that even as a choice. We could. We've got the best opportunity to become experts in God's Word, and we take it for granted. Like Peter, talk is cheap. I will never, divert, I will never desert you, says Peter, and then we'll see that he does. The disciples in the garden... Unable to stay just to stay awake when 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 it was down to the wire. It's so easy to claim to be a Christian. Most of the U.S. claims to be Christian on surveys. We're still at the point that that's the majority of the people in the U.S. And yet, small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few find it. We have a nation that claims to be Christian doesn't act like it. The crowds that shouted Hosanna on a Sunday deserted Jesus by Thursday. It was the loneliest time in his life, and he was deserted in the garden even while they were present in body. They were not present in spirit. Those he trusted fled the garden when the guards showed up. Jesus doesn't seek crowds on Sunday. What he seeks is the faithful on on Thursday and Friday. He seeks a relationship with us, not our attendance, not, not our money in the offering plate. Does Christ have reason to trust in us, to rely on us? Should he rely on us? Have we proved to be faithful? Or will we desert he who died for us when we need him the most? And so we, we skip ahead to the end of the chapter, verse, verse 69. Now Peter was 
sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You know, Jesus said to his disciples in the garden, stay here and keep watch with me. Watch and, he says, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Now we probably should ask, what is he talking what is he talking about? What, what temptation was about to hit them in the garden? And, and we look back and see that Jesus said, you'll all disown me. And Peter said, it will never happen. Lord, I will never fall away. And, and then later that evening, we read this. We read that it didn't take long for Peter to not just deny Jesus, but with an, with an oath, with calling down curses on his own head, That's the temptation, isn't it? When the going gets tough, the temptation is to walk away. And so when the soldiers came to take Jesus, there was nobody left. He was all alone. The men who shared his last supper didn't stay with him in his time of need. Peter draws a sword and, and starts to defend Jesus. But when Jesus says, put the sword away, Peter's gone with the rest of them. And, 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 will not, and, and, so, and so here we have this passage, Jesus is literally on trial. And while Jesus is on trial for his life, Peter is saying that he doesn't know him. Why do we need to watch and pray? So that we don't fall into temptation. Sitting in the garden is the easy part. Pretty flowers, it's peaceful. It's easy to be a disciple in the garden lulled into a false sense of security. It's harder when the mob arrives wielding torches. Then we get tempted to leave our Lord. And all of this would be a really good Easter passage, but usually at Easter we don't jump to the end. These disciples that all fled, Jesus appears to them, calls them to follow him, calls them to... Their, their time with him is not done. They've, they've, they've had the chance to learn where they are weak, And so we skip to the end of the book. We go to Matthew chapter 28, verse verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So it's 40 days later. He's appeared to his followers. This is it. This is his last appearance to his followers. This is his final instructions often quoted 
but what does it mean? So I want to I dig into that for, for just a few minutes, what it means, um, tear it apart, ask the questions that help us apply the lessons that I think that the disciples were learning on, in those last hours of Jesus' life, uh, in the garden and after, after those events. Jesus comes back. These are the final words to them. This is what is for the disciples to take with them. But I would also say that this is for us. I, I don't think that there's any exceptions on this. Somebody will say, well, these were Jesus' message, messages to his apostles. Uh, this was for the twelve. I know that that's not the case because Jesus says, you know, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And the disciples were not going to be around for always. The twelve wouldn't always. So, so if this is, I will be with you until the end of the age, and the apostles weren't sticking around to the end of the age, then, then it's bigger than the twelve apostles. It's all his disciples. That includes us. Jesus couldn't be with those guys till the end of the age, but he's with us till the end of the age. He is with his church. It applies to us. The focus of this passage is discipleship. Um, in fact, specifically, uh, in what we have in English is here, um, go and make disciples. But, but the, you know I love my grammar. It doesn't say go and make disciples. Uh, uh, the, the, the verb is disciple. Uh, that's, that's what he says, disciple all nations. And so I'm trying to figure out what the shortest sentence in English would be. Um, there's got to be a verb out there that's only got two letters because an indicative case sentence would be for me to say, for example, Ken jumped. But if I say jump, implied within that is the subject. The subject is you. You jump. But we don't need to say the word you because that's how an imperative verb works. It's only directed to the person that you're talking with. And so any verb that is something that somebody does, is a complete sentence on its own because the subject is built into that. And so I can say jump or walk. And it's perfectly grammatically correct because that's how an imperative... But an imperative implies a direction. And, 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 and that whole word, imperative, means it's, it's, you've got to do it. it it's a command. It, 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 there's an essential nature that it must be done. And that's the force behind this word disciple. Disciple is our verb all nations. There's a command to his people, to his church. The point of the Christian is not to go to church. First off, because the church is not the building. The church is the people. But the point isn't to come to church, to sing songs, to give offerings. The point of Christians is to draw close to God, to learn from him what he would have us do. Now, we do that through attending in this building together, building each other up, listening to sermons, singing songs of praise, giving our money to the offering plate. That is how we are the church. But we come to church so that we can equip ourselves to disciple each other. We want to draw closer to God. We want to be better and better disciples. Then we want to take that to the rest of the world. And although it says in English, Go and make disciples. That's not what it says in Greek. I like this. What it says is, when you go, disciple. As you go, disciple. The, the point, the go is not the verb. It's this clause that describes the discipling. 
Disciple is the verb. The go is when you go, as you go, going into all the world. Disciple. Uh, it, it, we're not called to hang out in the church. It kind of just assumes that we will be going almost. As you go into the world, while you're at it, disciple. Wherever you go, make disciples. Christ doesn't even command us to make a special trip. You don't have to be missionaries. When you go, whenever that is, wherever that is, do it in the name of Christ. Always share your faith. Take Jesus with you. Share the gospel and disciple. Where? To, when it says it's everywhere, to all the people. We, we say, uh, go into all the world. Um, Go and make disciples of all nations. Not the, nations is just not the word I would have chosen. The Greek word ethne means peoples. Uh, the emphasis is not on countries. The emphasis is not on borders, territories. You know, certainly in, in, in the news today, borders and territories are certainly all we can talk about, it feels like. Not just, you know, I mean, our, our southern border in the U.S. Was, was on the news up until... Ukraine's eastern border became, a, became kind of a bigger deal. Um, there's all this talk of, of borders, and, and, and we've got this talk about Russia and Ukraine, but of course I think we recognize that the real conversations that are taking place are the, the ethnic, there's our word ethne again, the ethnic identity of the people on the eastern side of Ukraine. Um, Russia's contention is they're more Russian than they are European, uh, and, and the argument the, the land borders isn't the point. The point is the people, because people matter more than, more than borders. And they matter to God more than borders. God, God doesn't care about the nations. You know, he cares about the people. He always has. Um, it's always been his emphasis. He loves all of us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. Christ isn't just for us. He's not white, middle-class Americans who we feel comfortable around. He's for everybody. God so loved the whole world that there's no excuse not to love the world like he does. Christians should be the least racist people on earth because, for two reasons, <laughs> number one, everybody got off the ark. We're all related. And number two is that we, all, we recognize that we're all made in God's image, that Jesus died for everybody. Everybody is equal before God. Nobody's better than anybody else. We should be the least racist most welcoming people as, as we recognize that truth. There's no reason to keep him to ourselves. He loves Japan, Iraq, Russia, uh, any, all the countries in Africa equally. Um, he loves the people that we may not like, but he loves us all equally. This command has no exclusion. God loves all the people and he will love them through you. That's his command that we are to love people as he loves people. Do not fail to show love to those that, that Jesus died for. Now, there are two ways that Jesus says we are to disciple. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he commands. You can't say in light of this that baptism isn't important. It's the way that we disciple. We disciple people by proper teaching, proper baptism. We, you can't say, well, 
you don't need to have proper teaching. We know that you can't be a Christian without proper teaching. It's why, it's why the Bible, the New Testament writers, even the Old Testament writers, were willing to give their lives to make sure that we had the Word of God. Proper teaching is essential. Baptism is no different. It's, it's as, as important as proper teaching. So why do we call this the Great Commission? We believe that all authority really is his. And if this is true, if he is God, then he gets to call the shots. He sends us where he will, tells us how to go as he will. He is Lord, and we are his servants. The only question for us today is, do we believe that Jesus is the only begotten divine Son of God? That is, that is the gospel message. If we believe that, then we have to follow him. Uh, we can't put it off any longer. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number or 360, which I, you can see it, 361 or 243, whichever one we're up to. Um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The hour is here. We dare not be asleep. Will we be taken by surprise? We are called to choose. If you haven't chosen to follow Christ, um, to be baptized into his name, to walk a new life with him. I would like to talk with you about what that looks like. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.